0: Genesis chapter 1, and we're starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Our second Bible reading comes from Romans, starting in chapter 3. While you flick there, Romans chapter 3, I'll just give you a bit of context. Uh, This is a letter to the church uh, in Rome, uh, and the bit we're jumping into uh, comes after a bit of a discussion um, about Jews and Gentiles, so the Jewish people uh, and those who were not originally Jews but have become Christians, just addressing some conflicts that have been going on between those two groups. So Romans chapter 3, and we're starting at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike and are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin.
1: Thank you, Millie. Keep that part of the Bible. Actually, keep your Bible handy because we're doing a little bit of flicking backwards and forwards between Genesis and Romans today. But let me just say uh, a welcome to you if you're new or visiting today especially. It's great to have you along. Uh, Very happy for you to have joined us in the middle of our series or... Yeah, middle of our series on our statements of belief, what we believe as first things first. My name's Tim, I'm one of the pastors here, and so, uh, yeah, we're going to dive right in and pray. Um, Youth Church, is that your cue, by the way? Someone? Anyone? Yes? Don't look too excited. (laughs) Youth Church, off you go. How about I pray as they shift? Let me pray a very simple prayer, actually. It's basically, it's a... a Psalm of David. It's the last line of Psalm 19. It says this. Let me pray it as a prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, I just want to quickly acknowledge something. Actually, I've had a couple of a couple of conversations, and questions this week that I think is helpful to actually articulate and clarify about our statements of belief. Um, a couple of questions about how they were formed and how they're changed, if they're ever changed. Um, which is a really helpful, good question. Now, <clears throat> basically speaking, or generally speaking, you'll notice that our uh, statements of belief, which are on our website, high and clear, available for all, they will, will fit a pattern of what you would maybe label a reformed evangelical position. All right? Now, labels in that rate are, are helpful and unhelpful. They can be um, give you a bit of a ballpark sort of uh, idea of what to expect or what's distinctive here. In fact, when we say Reformed Evangelical, often it'll be associated with something called Calvinism. These are not words. There's no spelling test after the, after the church on this one. Um, but Calvinist, and, and what Calvinist theology derives from the Bible, the distinctives that you'll notice in our statements of belief will be distinct distinctions about God's sovereignty in all things, including salvation, even predestination. That's a conversation I've had with the three or four people this week. Good conversation to be having the other distinctive will be so it will be the authority of the Bible and the a third and it's not the, these are not the only three but the nature of the atonement for whom did Christ die? that's a really important question. We'll be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. But what I wanted to tell you is that, so you get a bit of a flavour, so you know high and clear, this is who we are as a church and why we hold these views is because we're convinced that biblically this is the best way to understand and hold these things. And so our statements of beliefs are not my best guess. Uh, That's not Mike and I sitting in the back room going, what do you reckon this week? No, I think that one's a bit dodgy. Let's just whack in a new sentence here. No, um, they're part of our constitution. So they are constitutionally agreed upon by our partners. The last time we changed anything in our statements of belief, which is sometimes necessary, and it was actually this statement in response to the shift in culture, we actually do that. Uh, the process for changing your statement of beliefs constitutionally is quite a big thing. Um, it happens at a special meeting like an AGM where suggestions are made. It's all tumbled out, um, hammered out, and then agreed upon or, or signed off by our partners. Um That's how our constitution, our statements of belief happens, that's how it's changed, if ever it's changed, and it's always high and clear for everyone to be able to access. Now, the important thing to notice here is that not everyone will hold to these views um, as, as we've agreed upon as a partnership, that's okay. That's not a problem in terms of coming along to church. It's fine. I, I want, you, In fact, what's important is to keep wrestling on these things because at the end of the day, we, we want to be people who are faithful to the Bible. Uh, we want to see uh, biblically why we th- think these things, and that's exactly what we're doing now, is uh, high and clear, having these out so uh, out uh, on display, talking through them as a church, so that we can see, is this right, reasonable and correct? Is it the way we ought to think about these, these particular doctrines? If not... Um, how do I need to change in line with God's word? And as I said to you in the very first week, if I'm wrong on anything, I want you to correct me biblically as well. That's a, that's a, uh, a commitment I will make to you and I want you to make to me. Um, so that's the first little longer intro, introduction. But anyways, of all the doctrines in our series and in our statements of belief, I would say the one we're looking at today has had has seen the most significant shift in terms of popular opinion and in cultural alignment in the recent years. I'm, I'm of course, talking about the doctrine of humanity, right? or the topic of humanity last week, I introduced a new word into some people's vocabulary, it appears. When I mentioned the word puffteenth, um, someone has asked that I change that to puffteenth. The, the, the concept is the same, it's this this little nothing. it's it's to describe a measure of extreme insignificance. Now, I'm not sure what the opposite of a puffteenth is. But the cultural shift in attitudes about humanity in recent years, especially as it relates to human identity and relationships, is the exact opposite of a puffteenth. I'm not sure what that is. I haven't come up with a word for that one yet. But it's huge. In fact, I would suggest that the swing and the shift has happened so fast and so far in the last few years that if you had told me 10 years ago that there'd, even, there'd even be a suggestion for a move away from words like mother and father towards words like birthing parent and non-birthing parent in some spheres of society. If you told me that 10 years ago, or, or if you told me that the question of gender on an application form could have uh, had upwards of 80 different alleged possibilities, or that under the guise of equal rights and even under the banner of feminism and progress that a biological male would be allowed to swim and compete against biological females in any sort of competition, or openly use female change rooms based purely on a subjective sense of self-identity, and more than that, if you question the wisdom or the appropriate of, of appropriateness of such things, that you would be labelled a bigot or charged with the purveyor of hate speech. If you had suggested any of those things to me as a possible reality anywhere in the world, even 10 years ago, I'd have called you a lunatic. I would have said that that was crazy talk, that was alarmist, that was absolute piffle, And yet in 2022, this is where we are on the stage of the Western world, do you you realize? In some pockets of society, they are the precise things that that, that we're battling with. So despite all our advancements, despite all our achievements as a human race, we are, I would say, almost more divided on the basics of what it means to be human than any time that I can think of in history. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? How do, you, how do you understand, with so many wildly different, often directly and aggressively opposed views and opinions touted from different and various camps, what do you do with it? How, does, how should you respond as a Christian? <clears throat> well, I hope it comes as no surprise to you now that just like every one of our doctrine topics that we were talking about in this series, the first base and the bedrock foundation we need to establish for any truth on any of these subjects, it's not popular opinion. It's not personal experience, it's not science and reasons, science and reasons, it's not the tradition of the ages, it is and ought be in what God has revealed on the subject by his spirit through his word and that's what we're doing again today, seeking to apply what God has revealed about humanity, especially as it relates to human identity and relationships, so that we might live in line with the creator's design and desire to actually flourish as his creatures. And can I just add one more little acknowledgement here that the topic of humanity is obviously deeply personal for each of us. All right? We've all got a significant stake in this topic. In fact, in that sort of physical and metaphorical sense, we've all got skin in the game here by virtue of the fact that we're all human. And so the potential to be triggered or rattled or challenged in a way that might feel us, make us feel uncomfortable is particularly real on this one. And so I just want to say again up front that my desire, hear me rightly, is not principally to ruffle anyone's feathers. My desire and my aim is not to make anyone feel uncomfortable on these topics, but at the same time, because my desire is to establish and uphold God's truth on these topics as of first priority, I'm willing to concede that it might make some feel uncomfortable or rattled. And I'd encourage you at that point that keep your eyes focused on what is true, not what is comfortable, not what is convenient, and if you're feeling that triggered, and I mean it in a genuine sense, if you're feeling that little bit triggered on things, try to keep your attention on the truth or the, or the falsehood of the statements that are being made or the arguments themselves rather than just immediately on the emotional response they may elicit. I think we'll be doing really well to look after and love each other if we can do that. Can we agree on that? Give me a bit of, you know, all in favour, all right? No, none of <laughs> No. Now, once again, there's there's more to be said on this topic than I'll say, but for the sake of clarity, I'm going to stick to some key statements, some key aspects listed there about our beliefs about humanity. They're printed in your outline. And I'm going to speak to them largely under two headings. In fact, the two headings that really represent a a key tension point about humanity that's reflected in the Bible and indeed is reflected in modern opinion and thought. It's the tension that recognises the good in humanity at the same time as acknowledging the bad. Now it's important to realize this and I don't think there's anyone that I'm I'm aware of that seriously denies that there is something about humanity that is at one and the same time gloriously good and yet gut-wrenchingly bad. Capable of much virtuous excellence and yet guilty of so much evil vice. I mean look no further than Eastern Europe at the moment. How do you understand and hold that tension? How do you explain that tension? How do you solve that tension? See, on these questions, God's word and modern thought are in sharp disagreement. And what we'll find in the Bible, what we'll find in God's assessment of things, and therefore what we all find in the expressions of genuine Christian conviction, is both a much higher view of humanity than the world or popular opinion allows, and at the same time a much lower view of humanity than the world is willing to admit. Thanks, Mike. I've actually completely ripped that off Mike. He brought it this, uh, this brought so much clarity to my thinking on this that I've sort of gone with his dichotomy here, which I think is helpful. But let me start with the high view of humanity. And under a couple of headings there, you'll see in your outline, in terms of value, dignity and worth, in terms of purpose, how is it the Bible presents a much higher view of humanity than the spirit of our age permits? Well, one particular line that you might have heard in secular thinking, very common today, is that humans are essentially just sort of more evolved apes. Have you heard that sort of thinking? In this thinking, humanity has risen to ascendancy over other species by some random chance of evolution, and though we are now clearly the apex species on earth, we don't occupy that position because of any inherent qualities. In fact, the thinking goes that if things had gone different through this supposedly blind evolutionary process, sloths could have potentially been the kingpins, not humans. In fact, give enough years, like a few billions, and the age of men may yet give way to the age of the sloth. It's always the seemingly slow, sleepy ones you need to watch out for. I'm watching you, Luke. Well, huh? <coughs> in this, <laughs> Luke's always my whipping boy in, in terms of jokes. He just I don't know. In this way, humans, it's said, are no different to uh, other animals or different to animals with just another animal or other sentient beings. It's said that we are of no greater value, dignity or worth. Now that attitude or that opinion gives rise to two opposite extreme views in practice. On the one hand, an attitude of meat is murder is a potential outflow of that idea. It's the attitude that says that killing a cow... Our, uh, for, for food, for eating, that's the same as killing a human. That's one way that you can take that, extre- that ex- to the extreme. The other extreme end is to say that because uh, humans are just animals, that abortion and euthanasia are completely legitimate methods of population control and probably even a necessary thing to do for the good of the environment as a whole. They are two opposite extreme views. And if you accept the world's view that humanity are no different from animals, you'll find it difficult to argue consistently against any of those two extremes as genuine options. But of course, God's word says something very different. Would you turn to that first reading? If you've got a Bible there, Genesis 1, 26, we're going to look at this. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, grab one from up the back, Write your name in it, it's yours. But look at that in the Bible here. What we read here is at the very beginning, God created humanity distinct and different from the rest of the the rest of created order with an inherent dignity value and worth not given to other species look at it there with me as i read from verse 26 it says this then god said let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, did you notice it there? A key phrase that distinguishes humanity from the rest of the created order. You'll need to read verses 1 to 25 in order to actually spot it for yourself. Please do. But let me give you the shortcut answer. It's in verse 26. It's the fact that God, Elohim, we talked about this last week, the plural word for God, God creates humanity in his image. And given that we saw last week that God is three in one, triunity, he uses the pronoun our image. Now that's not said of anything else in the created orders, you realise. That's not said of any of the inanimate objects or any of the animate objects in verses one to twenty five. It's only said of humans. What does it mean for humanity to be made in God's image? Right, That's an enormous, profound theological question. But at the very least, from the text, we can immediately say that this image bearing relates to a dominion or ruling responsibility. Do you see that in the text? God makes humanity in his image so that, verse 26, they may rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock, etc. So straight off the bat, I want you to see here that the common assumption or the popular opinion of the world that humans are just slightly more evolved primates of no greater dignity, value, and worth than other creatures, uh, created species in the animal kingdom, that's just wrong. That's a poor, misguided assumption that leads to terrible practice. And it defies God, the creator, it defies his expressed decree and purpose from the beginning. That's a very high view of humanity, isn't it? That's a very high, God-given view of humanity. And notice something else about humanity in creation that speaks to this distinction from creation itself or the other species created, that speaks to an inherent dignity, value, and worth that God placed on humans. Have a look at it there in verse 27. God said, no, actually, do I want 27? Yes, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What this points out is that there's something about masculinity and femininity that is also caught up in our image bearing of God. Which makes it very plain straight away. It cuts down any notion of male or female superiority or inferiority. Creation itself allows no space for such a notion. Males and females are both created in the image of God and are of equal, inherent dignity, value and worth as image bearers. We'll see later, actually, um, that there is a distinction in the roles and responsibilities between Adam and Eve and therefore between men and women more generally. In fact, if you have a quick look there, uh, 2.15, flick over the page. Genesis 2.15, Adam is given specific responsibility for stewardship of God's creation. God speaks directly to Adam in verse 2.16 and gives him the parameters of his responsibility. And then in 2.22, God creates Eve as a suitable helper, someone fit to assist Adam in this responsibility, this God-given responsibility, because Eve possesses a set of comp- complementary but different skills and abilities to Adam. It's, it's important to see this. Adam and Eve can now work the garden together and tend God's creation and bring it to order, but more significantly and important, Adam and Eve could now make little Adams and Eves, if you know what I mean. They could actually fulfill the creation mandate, that specific God-given task of filling the earth and of subduing it. The ability to procreate makes that a lot better and easier. That's why Eve is the suitable helper for Adam. And it's important to see here, again, it's this, the equality and yet the difference between Adam and Eve, which likewise extends to males and females generally. In God's design, men and women are equal, but different. We'll see this played out in all sorts of roles. We'll actually talk about it in the last week in our sermon series in roles in the church. We see it played out in different roles in family and society at large. And it is a God-given good thing that ought be celebrated. Men and women are equal yet different. Different yet equal. And it's precisely in the difference that the strength of their complementarity exists. For example... The fact that men are generally bigger and stronger than women, I say generally because, of course, there are exceptions. Actually, I recently read of a study where I think someone, in, I don't know why they chose to throw on a baseball, but two out of a 1,000 women will throw a baseball faster than a man. It's not a value statement. It's just a matter of, you know, it's a, a, a data point of a, of a study. That's a physical stat. But the fact that men are generally bigger and stronger than women ought be to the benefit of women and the community at large. If, if men are to use this God-given difference in a way, in the way God intended for the protection of women and the good order of society. We don't see it used that way, do we, all the time? We'll get to that. That's the lower view stuff in a minute. It's not been given for bullying and intimidation and harassment. Those are abuses and perversion of God's good gift to masculinity, to maleness but it doesn't undermine that that actually ought be for the good of women and the benefit of society. And the reverse is also true. Again, psychological studies often will suggest and find that women exhibit higher levels of compassion than men. Again, noting exceptions, of course, but this again ought be to the benefit of men and the community at large, as women, or if women, use this God-given difference in the way that he intended For the nurturing of children, which again, let's be honest, women have a special and significant, specific role in the bearing of children. I can't do it, no matter how much I want to. don't have a womb. If women are using this nurturing, compassionate thing for the nurturing of kids, that's good. And actually their compassion compassion actually helps out to even hot-tempered men, let's be honest, for the good order of society, I want to suggest. I don't know how many times Tiana's talked me off the roof, so to speak. Again, the point is to recognize here that the equality and yet the difference between men and women, that's what we need to come to, come to deal with and to embrace this as God's purposeful design and generous gift rather than any sort of unfair limitation that I ought to feel indignant about or hard done by or offended about. That's a much higher view of masculinity and femininity than you'll hear in the world that's a much higher view of the beauty of the the masculinity and femininity than you'll hear in the world who are trying to flatten out gender to be indistinguishable one from the other which is not just untrue but it's unhelpful (laughs) and it really is causing a whole generation of children who are very confused And I want to say it's actually impoverishing society by actively denying God's goodness in creating males and females differently. Did you notice, actually verse 31 by the way, did you notice what God said after he creates men and women? He doesn't just say it's good now, he says it's very good. And this leads us to a next important God-given distinctive in favor of a very high view of humanity. God's careful design and deliberate exactness in making men and women equal but different speaks to a higher objective purpose than the secular world accepts. Notice in verse 28. Adam and Eve are the first creatures that God speaks to in order to give them a specific task or purpose. Have a look at there in verse 28. He says, It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now, God blessed other parts of creation and gave the general task of filling and multiplying. Verse 22, we hear him say that to the birds of the the sky and the fish of the sea. But he adds here a clear, purposeful task for humans that will require a bit more creativity and rational thought than just procreation. It's not just fill the earth, but it's subdue it. That is, bring it under control. That is, bring it to good order. See, that's going to require thought and effort and cooperation not seen or capable in the animal kingdom. And this creation mandate, if you will, speaks to a much higher view and responsibility placed upon humans It's not seen in the rest of creation. It points to the objective God-given purpose. Now, a little tangent. You know I love them. Hold on with me for this one for a minute. This initial creation mandate is somewhat undone by the fall in Genesis 3. We'll speak about that in a minute. It's when humanity, through the sinful rejection represented by Adam and Eve, they brought about the corruption of the relationship, not just between humans and God, but between humans and the rest of creation. So that now, humanity has lost the ability to fulfill that initial creation mandate successfully, bringing creation under control. See, creation is still wild and untamed in many places and even in the spaces we've civilised, have you noticed, weeds, disease, animal attacks, natural disasters still operate well outside of human control. We, We failed. It's where we see Jesus coming to restore order. See, in the life of Jesus, he exhibits the total control over creation that we were supposed to bring about. And then he his, ushers in a new creation mandate through his death in resurrection. And if you want to know what the new creation mandate looks like and sounds like, it looks like and sounds like Matthew 28, 9 into 20. If you know it, it's the Great Commission. In fact, someone's going to come and preach on that for us in a couple of weeks' time. But what the creation, the new creation mandate does... It's being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it is no longer about getting married and having babies. It's about making disciples and bringing others to the awareness of the universal lordship of Jesus. That's the new creation mandate. Do you know what's wonderful about that? It's something that all Christians can do. Young or old, married or single, kids or no kids. That's the new creation mandate in Christ. Sermon for three weeks away. The point I want you to see here and that you need to see here is that there is an objective God-given purpose for humanity collectively and individually, and it's not in the highly individualistic questions of the world today. What am I good at? What do I like doing? No, that's my calling. No, no. That's not your purpose in life. That's what modern culture says. Do you know what your purpose in life is? You ever stopped and went, what is my purpose in life? I'll tell you right now what your purpose in life is. It's to glorify God by knowing Christ and making him known. That's your God-given ultimate purpose, period. And regardless of whether you spend your working hours mopping floors or painting pictures or performing heart surgery, your ultimate God-given purpose in life is the same. It's neither tied to or achieved in your working profession, but rather born through your Christian profession, Jesus is Lord, and helping others realize the same. Notice the play on words on the profession and profession there? Not your working profession, your Christian profession. Come on. Somebody, give me. I work hard at these puns. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks. It's a very high calling, isn't it? To know, be known by, and made, make known the maker of the heavens and the earth. Can you think of a higher calling? That's an incredible high honor. That's an incredibly specific purpose that speaks to an incredibly high view of humanity as distinct from the rest of creation. It speaks to a God-given, inherent dignity, value and worth that ought humble and satisfy you more than any news you could possibly hear if only you are given the ears to hear it. If only you've got the ears to hear it. God created you human. He created you male or female in his image. The question is, are you living in line with his incredible high honor and calling? How much time do you spend praising God for the way he created you, male or female? And do you spend time considering how you use your God-given distinctiveness to know him better and make him known? That is a question worth pondering, isn't it? It's a question worth pondering because sadly it's not what we see on the large scale either in Wagga, or in New South Wales, or Australia, or the world. This is the second half of the tension about humanity, created for glorious good and yet guilty of grievous evil. As I said earlier, when it comes to how to understand, explain, and ultimately suggest solutions to this tension, it's where biblical Christianity is at complete odds with popular opinion in the world at large. See, why God's word reveals a much higher view of humanity in terms of dignity, value, purpose, worth, On the score of capacity, God's word reveals a much lower view of humanity than posited by the so-called social experts of our age. If I was to boil it down simply and give you a bit of a one-liner, the secular view is that the problem of humanity is out there and we must look for the solution in here, inside of us. Problem's out there, got to find the solution in here. God's assessment is that the problem is in here, it's inside of us, it's in the heart and that the only solution is outside of us. It's actually in, God, in what God is able to do on our behalf. It's the exact reverse. Now I want to deal again with this in two subheadings. Issues underpinned in our statements of beliefs, which are in turn obviously underpinned by the Bible, but you'll see the first phrase there in statement three, universally sinful. Sorry folks, this is where it gets a little bit dour and gloomy. Dim the lights. I don't know how we set the mood for this one. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Tragically, what we'll see here is that by nature and choice, all humanity is universally sinful. All humanity is guilty of rebellion against God and we find ourselves deserving of his judgment under his wrath. And the second, second subheading you'll notice on your outline is that we are hopelessly lost if left to ourselves. It's just a shorter summary of uh, statement four that you'll see on your outline. Universally sinful, not the most cheaper of subtitles, but, um, but is it True. Is it a fair assessment? Is it God's assessment of humanity in our natural state? And the answer is yes. Difficult as it may be to hear, the horrible but true answer is yes. And it's important to do this. I always think about the illustration of it's a bit like if you're a bit concerned about health issues, you go to the doctor, you get some blood tests, he looks at your results. Wow, that's cancer. And then he says to you, no, she's right. It's okay. You're all good the doctor's not doing his job at that point all right the the hard horrible truth here is and i'm not the doctor by the way i'm the patient as well god is the doctor here god is the one who is making this statement humanity is universally sinful fallen broken and we need to hear it we need to hear it because the only hope of a solution or or of a cure is right right um prognosis or diagnosis Yeah, it's a fair assessment. It's a horrible fair assessment. And this is played out actually consistently in the biblical narrative. It starts in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world through Adam, acting as humanity's representative, because when he and Eve sinned and fell, humanity fell with them. In fact, listen to Paul's assessment of this in Romans 5.12. Speaking of that event... Paul says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, just keep an eye on that statement for a minute. What it's saying here is it's kind of like an inherited genetic condition in a kind of a fashion. In the likeness of Adam and Eve, we are sinners by nature, and we prove this to be true by the choices we make. And if you want to see that played out in real time, by the way, watch toddlers play for five minutes. Or better still, think of yourself as a toddler. (laughs) Easier for some than others. I'm there. (laughs) Did anyone teach you to lie as a toddler? Did anyone teach you to be selfish? Did anyone teach you to throw a tantrum? You may say to me, oh, I learned it from my older brother. And I'll ask you, where did he learn it from? Because the truth is, this stuff is not taught. No one needs to be taught to be selfish. This is the stuff that is inherent. It's innate. It's thoroughly natural, not in the healthy way. It's what the Bible means by being sinners by nature and by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1-4, we'll look at that in a moment. And the truth is, it's your problem, it's my problem, it's the problem of every single human who has ever lived, every person bar one. That's Jesus. That's next week. But listen again to Paul quoting God's assessment of all humanity in Romans 3.9. We heard it already when Millie read it for us. Interesting side note here, what Paul is doing here, he's actually just quoting several sections of the Old Testament. He's quoting lots of Psalms, heaps of Psalms. He's quoting Ecclesiastes. He's even quoting Isaiah. In other words, what he's doing here, he's showing how this is consistently being God's assessment through the whole Old Testament. He's quoting from, as the, as the Jews would have it, the three sections of the Old Testament the wisdom, the Psalms, and the prophets. He's going, it's consistently through this. Have a look at it there, Romans 3, 9. What shall we say then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God all have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's what it's meant by universally sin- sinful. That's what we mean. This is, if you like, you know, and talk doctrinal terms, we call this the doctrine of total depravity. No one righteous. No one seeks God. No one who is good, not even one. Now, it's important to note at this point, it doesn't mean humanity is as bad as it could be. Total depravity is very different from utter depravity. Utter depravity is where we can only do the worst thing all the time. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what the Bible is saying. It's saying that total depravity instead maintains that sin has affected every aspect of our personhood. So you and I will bear the fruit of sin in every facet of our life, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our thoughts. Uh, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our emotions, in our even our sexual expression, in our words, in our desires, sin has corrupted or infected or perverted every aspect of of our personhood, not always in the same way and not always to the same measure, but the problem of sin is universal. We're still image bearers, But like a badly broken mirror, we don't consistently image God as we ought. And again, if it was possible, it gets a bit worse. (laughs) It gets worse for a minute because, you see, biblically speaking, not only is humanity universally sinful, not only have we all rejected God by nature and choice, borne out in the sinful actions of our life, so that we're all sinners who are guilty under the curse of death and judgment from God, Not only that, but left to ourselves, we're totally incapable of fixing the problem on our own. It's the last subheading here. It's another horrifying truth of the effects of sin spoken of in Romans 3 to the point where God's assessment of humanity is not just that there's no one good, but more devastatingly, verse 11, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks, even seeks God. All have turned away And together become utterly worthless? Together become worthless? That is stinging, don't you think? That is literally very damning, don't you think? And it's God's own assessment. In fact, back to Ephesians 2 that I mentioned earlier. Paul describing that natural spiritual state of all humanity without Jesus. Ephesians 2.1 says it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you lived. Sorry, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You hear that? Spiritually dead in sin, captive to it. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Dead in sin. Dead in sin by nature deserving wrath. Here's my question. How do spiritually dead people have any hope of coming back to life? It's the same hope that the physically dead person has of reanimating themselves. No hope. But, verse 4. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2. Because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. He's the only way for dead people, the only hope for dead people. It's not from within, it's from without. It's from God who is the only one capable of performing the miracle of calling death out of life, uh, sorry, life out of death. Important not to make that mistake. Just like Jesus did it for Lazarus in a physical temporal sense in John 11, Read it at home, but notice that Lazarus did precisely nothing to contribute to his coming back to life. In fact, he could only respond after Jesus had quickened him. Lazarus, come out. And by way of a modern, more modern illustration, I'm going to finish with this one. To pick that up and put it in a bit more, I think something that we can understand. The truth of humanity's spiritual plight before a holy, perfect and righteous God is less like a person drowning in the ocean, needing rescue and scrambling to find something to hold on on to, to keep afloat. That's often how we put it. We're we're struggling struggling with sin. We need someone to throw it so we can grab out with the hand of faith. No. We're more like the dead, swollen corpse at the bottom of the ocean floor. We're not just struggling, we're Lazarus, dead in sin, unable to do anything to better our spiritual situation. We need a miracle. We need a miracle. That's what we're going to focus on next week, folks. It's the miraculous saviour leading to the miraculous salvation through Jesus. It's our only hope. Now, this is long and heavy it's only the beginning of a conversation in many ways but i hope it does provide some good fodder for discussion with your bibles open so that we might understand with greater clarity the things of god that we might be clearer on the miracle he has performed on our behalf in christ it feels really weird for me to sort of get to 40 minutes in and go rightio sinners damned to hell hopeless see you later <laughs> it's why we've got to see that there is a solution here And it's the solution that God has provided in Christ, a fitting saviour, able to perform the miracle of reanimation, of resurrection, of new creation that we cannot do ourselves. Let's pray and we'll talk about that over the next couple of weeks. Pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners. We're sinners by nature and choice. Every aspect of our personhood has been marred by sin and left to ourselves. We are hopeless. We are deserving of your judgment and wrath. And though the problem is very great, at the same time as recognizing that devastating truth, we can praise you that you provided an even greater solution in Christ. That by despairing in ourselves, you call us to look to him to find that greater solution that solution that will one day restore us to the glory that you created us with, to be your image bearers in a real, right, and proper sense, Father. For those who are amongst us who are here at the moment, physically alive and spiritually dead, we ask that you would quicken them, that you would actually call life out of death, from darkness to light, just like you created light out of darkness in the beginning. You do it in the hearts of people all the time to see your glory in the face of Jesus. Please do that for people here who don't know you yet. And for us who have already had that magnificent recreation experience, Father, sharpen our eyes further, that we might praise you and glorify you, that we might know you better and make you known. We pray for Jesus' glory. Amen.